Welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm Ashkin Kazarian. On today's episode of the Tech Policy Podcast, we're joined by Jesse Blumenfall. Jesse leads tech and innovation across the Coke Network. Jesse, thank you for joining the show. Thanks so much for having me. Jesse, what does it entail leading the tech and innovation for the Coke Network? Sure. So leading tech and innovation policy means uh, a variety of different things. It means I get to work with my colleagues at the Charles Koch Institute and Charles Koch uh, Foundation on the educational programs we run and the grant making we do to support think tanks and civil society groups and academic researchers. Uh, it means I get to work with my colleagues at Americans for Prosperity, um, both the grassroots activists, our 36 state chapters and our federal affairs team on some of the politics and policy around tech. Uh, and it means I get to work with groups uh, across our network, including the litigators and the community organizations and uh, our venture philanthropy and all, all the different component parts of our network. When you do all of this work, that sounds like a lot of work, by the way, what are the values and the principles that are you're basing your tech and innovation work on? Yeah, so... For us, if you look over uh, the course of human history, we believe that innovation has the potential to improve people's lives. And if you look over the last two, three hundred years, that innovation is in fact the the root cause of why people's lives have gotten better, why we live richer, longer, more fulfilling, more connected, better lives, um, and that. We believe that requires two things. It requires a culture that's welcoming of innovation, uh, and it requires a policy environment that allows spontaneity and dynamism and experimentation to occur. Tech policy is a huge field. What are the issues that you focus on in your line of work? Yeah, so so building on those those two sort of precepts, right? That um, innovation has uh, the potential to improve people's lives, but you need a lot of experimentation. Uh, we work in sort of three buckets of areas. So the first is we we work on cultural fears around technology. You know. Fear is important. It sends a, a signal to us where there might be risk or danger, but too much fear can become debilitating. And you know, if, if people look at the future of technology and they see uh, a dystopian future, you know, a robot coming to take their jobs, and that's all that they see, then it, it's reasonable that they sort of grasp for the nearest tool at hand to just come in and make that stop. But but that cultural fear. Um, uh, has the risk of really holding us in place, right? It, Deirdre McCloskey is really great about this. She writes in uh, her work about um, how the word innovator has evolved over time. So a couple hundred years ago, if you called someone an innovator, uh, it was basically a synonym for a heretic. Um, you know, Galileo was an innovator, and the story doesn't end particularly well Not for well. him. Um, and and so, but but that's swung culturally, right? Today, everyone wants their children to grow up to be innovators. They want them to grow up to discover something new, to invent something new. And that that's great. Uh, one of the things we worry about is that that pendulum is, is sort of starting to swing back. And so we work on those cultural fears. And then we work on uh, two big buckets of public policy that we think allow for that dynamism to occur. So we work on digital free speech and free association, you know, questions around privacy from government surveillance and encryption and intermediary liability and, and what to do when people are terrible to the, each other on the internet. And this third bucket we work on are regulatory barriers. Um, so we think about competition policy and antitrust. We think about commercial privacy and data regulation. We think about uh, the intersections of tech and transportation, as well as tech and healthcare. 
All right, so let's dive into the buckets and go backwards. So yeah. start with uh, regulatory barriers. You mentioned transportation, um, privacy, consumer privacy comes to mind since 2019 is the Super Bowl for privacy lawyers. <laughs> What are the pressure points that you think are the most important when we talk about regulatory barriers? The pressure points that I'd point to are that there's a, a lot of concern right now uh, about what can be done to protect consumers' privacy. And that's reasonable, right? Um, consumers, um, consumer trust is important in the, the tools that we use every day throughout our lives. The question is, how can you uh, ensure that consumer privacy is protected, that people aren't being defrauded, that they um, are entering into agreements that they know what's sort of on the other side of the bargain um, without uh, destroying innovation and destroying experience? Experimentation. And so one of the things we worry a lot about is the government getting into the business of playing designer, um, of saying you must build your product in X way or in Y way, uh, in part because one, they te there's a real risk of screwing that up today. Um, you know, But even if you can assume that the government might get it right and whatever law or regulation is crafted can uh, create a design that works today, the odds that that'll work five years from now or 10 years from now are big. Basically, zero. And so it doesn't account for that dynamism, that experimentation, the new business models, the new approaches. It's also rerouting innovation and development of the whole country. Um, one thing that I've noticed coming from Europe is that the laws in Europe have definitely, by the design, have been more restrictive, more um, dominant of innovation. And what do we see? The big tech companies and the small startups that are coming in to change the world, almost all of them are housed in the United States of America. And I don't think it's um, just a random ev event that occurred. I think it has to do with the fact that up to this moment, definitely the regulation and the way we've enforced the laws that we have has been more reactionary to the problems that have occurred and it let the innovation go. Would you say that? Yeah, so I totally agree. And I want to pick up on something that you said there, because I think it's important, right? So you said both big businesses and small startups, right? So it's easy to look at a list of uh, all the major tech companies and notice that with the handful of a uh, with the exception of a handful of basically Chinese state-backed or blessed actors, um, they're all American, right? And that's great. We should celebrate the the success uh, of, of major firms. We should also celebrate the success of uh, and dynamism associated with startups and small firms and the, the um, rate at which that list of top firms changes, which if you look um, over a five or 10 year period, there's a huge amount of fluctuation in what the largest companies are. And that's actually a really good sign. Remember MySpace, yep. Yahoo? Exactly. Um, and and the other piece that's, that's really different, especially in the privacy context between the US and Europe, is the European understanding of what enforcement means, right? So there there's a degree to which, uh, in part because Europe, quite frankly, has less of a, a challenge of runaway trial attorneys that we have in the United States, um, that Europe will pass these sort of ambiguous aspirational laws and regulations um, with full knowledge that Basically, they won't be enforced as written, or the expectation is that you come into the office and you sort of negotiate with the regulator and, and you come to a shared understanding. Um, I think most Americans would find that very strange, uh, certainly most American lawyers. Uh, and anxiety-inducing, if you ask me. Yeah, and it, it uh, undermines the sort of uncertainty that comes from a, a 
I would say, a stronger commitment to the rule of law. Um, but it also allows for politicians to pick winners and losers. So there was this great piece in the Wall Street Journal just before GDPR went into effect, um, the big European privacy law, where the kicker quote, the last quote in the piece was an anonymous European official basically saying, yeah, I know lots of companies have complained about this new privacy law and we haven't quite worked out the details, but don't worry because we're just going after Google and Facebook anyway. And, you know, one, I think it's uh, problematic for regulators to think about their role in terms of prospectively targeting particular firms. Um, but two, the level of anxiety, you know, I've had a number of conversations with folks who work at uh, companies that are perceived to be big, but actually only have two or three people who work on public policy. They have one lawyer and they, they you know, she sits down the hallway. Um, that the prospect of having to be perceived to be big and go in and barter with a regulator for the the chance that your your business might be blessed is is really scary. It becomes almost existential. If you think about the California Consumer Protection Act, if it goes into effect, which it's set to do on January 1st, we're going to have a privacy regime just in the state of California. And if nothing happens on the federal level, uh, probably our states are going to start passing laws regulating privacy in, in their own states. And that's going to shatter the landscape. And small companies, big companies are all going to have to comply. And the big difference is going to be that small companies have that one lawyer, one team, and not enough resources to hire outside counsel to deal with that, right? So I agree with you on the compliance piece. I, I don't agree that it's just going to apply in the state of California, right? So without getting into whether or not the law actually is ter extraterritorial, that is to say that it applies um, as a matter of sort of black letter law outside of the state of California, the intent and the entire purpose of the law is clearly extraterritorial, right? So what California is trying to do is basically throw its weight around and trying to uh, regulate interstate commerce by, by size, right? So you have de facto national or really de facto international privacy policy being set in Sacramento. Um, and then it's entirely possible that a whole series of states might pass laws that, that there's no reason to believe wouldn't conflict with each other. And, and so that the prospect of having California passing international law and privacy um, both undermines the federal government's appropriate role in establishing the sort of rules around interstate commerce, uh, but also creates really terrible incentives, right? It creates a sort of ratchet effect where you have um, any jurisdiction that has a sufficiently large market to try and uh, export its rules and its values to other countries, um, de facto trying to, to rule outside of their territorial borders. What do you see as a solution to this very big puzzle that we have on privacy? So, so we're supportive of federal privacy legislation. Um, we think it should be um, uh, it, it's appropriate for the federal government to come in and set the terms for interstate commerce. One of the one of the things that allowed the U.S. to become a 
the leader in tech policy and in technology innovation um, over the last couple of decades has been a large, relatively harmonized national market. Right, so a, a strong federal privacy bill that uh, includes preemption um, for for these sort of one-off state laws um, that isn't so prescriptive or so um, so involved that it gets into government designing how different services ought to work. Right, so you know, my colleague Neil Chilson has said this a lot better than I can in a paper he wrote for the Federalist Society's Regulatory Transparency Project. And and what the paper boils down to is that it's a, it's entirely possible to preserve people's privacy um, without destroying innovation, but it requires uh, the federal government to take a, uh, an active but but humble role in what privacy should uh, policy should look like. I see. Well, if we're talking about regulatory barriers, there's obviously not this one. Are there any other ones that you would want to highlight as examples of the challenges that we have to face? Yeah. So uh, I think one of the real challenges that we've been looking at is some of the rhetoric around antitrust policy. So antitrust enforcement is among the most powerful, if not the most powerful, economic regulatory tool that the federal government has. Um, right, This is the power of the state to come in and break up firms. Uh, this is the power of the state to come in and deny the ability to for firms to merge or to undo those mergers. It's, it's a tremendously powerful tool. Um, but in some ways, it's like a really, really large hammer. Um, and if you roll the clock back a couple of decades, uh, the there was a really high degree of unpredictability in anti Antitrust. So when Robert Bork wrote his famous book, you know, 40 years ago, The Antitrust Paradox, he he described the way antitrust enforcement worked as like a sheriff in the old west who would wander into a new town and you know maybe he'd been drinking a bit and he'd find someone on the side of the road who he wanted to make an example of to prove that the sheriff was really powerful and he'd take out a six shooter and sort of pistol whip someone um, and then he'd go on and everyone would know the sheriff was powerful. Um, the problem with that you know, well, there's a lot of problems with that. One is it's really unpredictable who the sheriff's going to go after. Uh, the second is that um, it it while it communicates that the sheriff is powerful, it doesn't necessarily result in good law enforcement in the town. And so as we think about antitrust and sort of how it's evolved over the last number of decades, there's been really a strong bipartisan consensus around um, trying to figure out what's good for consumers. And that 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 basis where there's room for reasonable people to disagree on uh, various deals or various um, uh, fact patterns that present themselves, that that general consensus that the thing we should be arguing about is what is good for consumers has brought a level of justice and a level of predictability and a level of um, confidence to antitrust enforcement. Unfortunately, there's a real push on both the populist left and populist right to upend that, to have politicians come in and decide, well, we like these companies and we don't like those companies, or I just feel that this would be better for uh, labor policy or for environmental policy or for uh, my preferred size that, that companies become. And 
And that's really a challenge because if you're uh, using the most powerful economic tool for a whole host of political ends, what you end up doing is sort of weaponizing it. And so, you know, my colleagues at Americans for Prosperity have been very forthright, you know, through advertising campaigns, through the public statements we've released, through meetings we've had on Capitol Hill, that it's wrong for politicians to pick winners and losers in the marketplace, and it's wrong to politicize antitrust enforcement. It is, I think, very fascinating that this is, as you mentioned, not a partisan issue. It's a populist issue to a point. Uh, I don't want to categorize anyone in any way. However, it is becoming kind of a wave of tech clash. So tech companies are too big and people are scared of them. So this is just a way of getting them under control, even when they haven't done anything wrong. When they do have mistakes and do something that is harming consumers. Obviously, we have institutions and people in place who will go after them. But situations like this, when the jury, they're not violating any antitrust laws, but people feel like they should be broken up or punished in some way and regulated heavily, is very troubling to me. Now, um, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about my favorite topic, which is free speech and freedom of association that you mentioned is the second bucket that you guys work on. What are your thoughts? Do we like speech? Yeah, so we're pro speech. Uh, (laughs) Now that we've settled that one. Um, Yeah, so, you know, it is a different issue set. Um, We we worry a lot about the risk of... um, government coming in and and playing designer the thing we were talking about towards the beginning of the podcast where they're saying you know for for all speech flat speech platforms um in all circumstances here are the rules uh that you need to follow for bullying or for harassment or for nudity or for any other type of speech you know there, there's some baseline rules around fraud and child exploitation that everyone has to comply with and that's good um but but the heterogeneity of of uh speech standards on different private platforms Platforms is really good. And I'll give you a concrete example of this. Um, so think about the, the two probably largest video hosts right now. And I, I'd say, you know, I don't have market data in front of me, but that YouTube and Vimeo come to mind is that the two main places where people host video. Well, the types of people who use those platforms are actually pretty different. Um, YouTube appeals very much to a mass audience. It's very much uh, end users, amateurs. Um, well, how I learned how to do anything around the house. <laughs> or my makeup. Exactly. And some of those videos are professional, but a lot of those videos are just, you know, someone with a cell phone teaching you something else. And that that connectivity can be great. Um, But because YouTube appeals to a really broad audience and has a largely free product, um, they have relatively strict policies around nudity, right? They they don't want to be the place on the web for pornography. You know, Lord knows there are plenty of other places for that. So contrast that with Vimeo, right? Vimeo is largely a subscription-based service. Uh, It tends to appeal to creative professionals, you know, movie makers and artists and advertisers and folks like that who are making high quality, often professional video. Um, Vimeo couldn't, as a for their rules, set a policy that um, that doesn't allow nudity. And I, I don't say this that they they legally couldn't, but it, it doesn't make commercial sense for the types of audiences they're trying to reach. And so they strike this balance where they say we we will allow nudity, but we won't allow pornography on the platform. Um, I think that's a really interesting choice by Vimeo to to appeal to that segment because they're making trade-offs against they're showing more mature content, and so there's probably a, a reduced general population audience for that. Um, I think it's a good thing and a really important thing that both 
of YouTube and Vimeo exist, though, and that they take different approaches because they're trying to appeal to different customers. Another thing that I've seen in newspapers, a position that you guys have expressed that considers First Amendment and free speech and platforms has been content moderation and how platforms should moderate their content and how does that um, work with the First Amendment. And there have been a lot of outcries, especially from the conservative side, with statements like, we're being silenced, there's a bias against us in tech platforms. I haven't seen yet any empirical evidence of that. There was more anecdotal evidence on top of just obviously stating that tech companies are mostly um, populated with workers of more liberal views. Um, however, that doesn't mean that there is bias. Uh, what? Why did you get involved in this issue, why do you think it's important? What did you do and what did you say on this? So first, let me start by saying there is no credible evidence that there's systematic bias against conservatives by major tech companies. There's there's a lot of folks up, out there using one-off anecdotes um, to, to try and make these arguments. And often, I think there's, there's a couple of things going on. So often the arguments, I think, are disingenuous um, or, or they misunderstand how content moderation works, right? So... Um, when platforms operate at the scale at which they operate, you know, the, the billions and billions of hours of video uploaded to YouTube, um, the something like a billion photos a day that are uploaded to Facebook, the number of tweets and posts and news article shares and whatnot, um, that even very, very small error rates are going to show up in absolute terms relatively frequently because there's just a huge amount of content on the internet and there is no content moderation system in the world that is perfect. Um, mistakes will be made and sometimes those are false positives and sometimes those are false negatives. Um, and I, you know, I think by and large, most of the platforms are engaged in a relatively good faith effort. They're engaged in a good faith effort to try and minimize those errors. Um, but, but it's impossible to get that down to zero. That being said, I think there is a lot of confusion about what the private rules of these private platforms are. And, and that's a place where public discussion is valuable. You know, uh, Eric Goldman at Santa Clara University has done really yeoman's work in trying to facilitate public forums. Um, the first one of them was at Santa Clara uh, February of last year. And then we helped um, support forums at, both in DC over the summer and in New York over the fall, where really for the first time as a group, major platforms, both big and small, right? So your uh, Twitters and uh, Googles and Facebooks, but also your Reddits and Mediums and Pinterests and uh, Vimeos got together and talked about, well, well, here are our rules and here's how we enforce them and here are the challenges we have and here's where AI is useful and here's where it's not useful. And uh, all of the different sort of trade-offs between um, types of error rate, between types of techniques, what resources are available at different companies was, was publicly discussed. And I think that's a good thing. Um, what we worry a lot about, though, is the government coming in and setting speech codes online. Um, uh, I think a lot of the public discussion, especially the discussion on the right about um, sort of allegations of conservative bias, um, boil down to trying to work the refs, 
right? Um, whether the whether the claims are legitimate or not, if you say them loudly and you say them angrily and you force the companies to sort of be be badgered by political officials, then those political officials are going to have a greater say in what the rules of those platforms are, and and that ought to scare us, right? A lot of people use the language of the First Amendment um, when talking about this and fail to remember that the First Amendment is supposed to protect us from government, not be used by government to set the rules on private private platforms. It's fascinating to me that they worked for refs already, even before they attempted to pass any legislation. When I've seen hearings when platforms apologize for taking down or demonetizing content that actually didn't comply with their um, terms of service. And there was even one of them that I'm not going to name, but there was one particular video that there was a court decision arguing that the information in that video was incorrect, defamatory. So Twitter didn't even delete the video, they just demonetized it, and then they were forced to apologize for it. It's fascinating how scared, because of attack clash and because of this kind of attack on different fronts and tech that's happening is, and what's the scariest thing is that free speech might be affected on the way. Um, Senator Ted Cruz, amongst others, have brought up an idea of neutrality, of platforms having to be neutral public forums. Some even say platforms should be utilities, you know, like the water and um, like any other kind of service that we have. Um, I guess the Kim, I don't even know how that will work, but what what are your feelings and ideas about that? Do you, would you agree? Uh, no, right? So, you know, if you like your local power utility or you like your local gas or water utility, you're going to love your local social media utility. I, I think that the idea of politicians coming in and, you know, pseudo-nationalizing speech platforms uh, ought to scare everyone involved. Um I do want to say that the the issues that we've talked about thus far is relatively separate. Right? We had a conversation about privacy, and then we had a conversation about antitrust, and now we're having a conversation about speech. These things are sort of swirling together in one one uh, cycle of outrage, and and that can lead to really dangerous uh, outcomes, even if no bill passes. Right. So the the point about working the refs and the point about politicians sort of uh, dictating their preferred content moderation policies is that they can use their soft power, their bullying of private firms to uh, to set these policies. Now, you know. Uh, as a civil society organization, as a think tank at Tech Freedom, um, I think you all have a point of view on what policy should be. But that's very different than saying um, we're going to come in and make the government mandate that you adopt our preferred policy on bullying or on harassment or on nudity or on violence. Um, and and it's important, I think, for us to distinguish between the sort of uh, baseline First Amendment protected speech, which is a really large category of stuff that includes terrible speech, right? Right, speech really that, bad speech. Speech that is uh, annoying. Speech that is um, uh, fake news. Yeah, is it, protected under First Amendment. Yeah, uh, the the everyone uh, always invokes sort of Nazis, right? So Nazi speech. ACLU protected Nazi speech. And and the point isn't to say that that speech should be celebrated or that it should be promoted because it certainly shouldn't be, right? Uh, it it should be condemned by all civilized people. That does doesn't mean that the government should come in and stop you from speaking um, because government power is unique. 
right? Um, as much as people might be mad at Facebook, Facebook can't throw you in jail. Facebook can't deny deny you liberty. Facebook can't deny you property. Um, and and the the people who sort of easily cross the line and say, well, you know, uh, just because you're big enough, the government's also big. Therefore, there, there's not much of a difference between the two. I think really fails to understand in a meaningful way um, what it means to have speech rights. Speech rights don't mean that you get to be heard. Speech rights don't mean that you get to monetize your content. Speech rights don't mean that you get to compel someone else to engage in an advertiser relationship with you. Um, speech rights mean that the government can't come in and shut you up. Um, and so, you know, it is possible, and I think good, that there are plenty of forums for expression, not just through large tech companies, but through individual blogs, through writing, through self-publishing, through radio, through uh, podcasts, right? Um, podcasts have led to a proliferation of the type and variety and nature of storytelling that has seen a tremendous renaissance um, that that doesn't require the blessing of any particular platform. Um, and, and so I think it's really troubling when people sort of make the jump from private platforms and how they define their speech and associational rights to, to comparing them to the government or, or invoking the same sort of like language around it. It really confuses the issue. Hey, conservatives, if you think that a private entity like a bake shop can say yes and no to who they bake the shop, uh, who they bake the cake for, it's really amazing that you at the same time think that you can tell a private entity like a platform what content they moderate and how they do it. And in that, ca that case, the Masterpiece Cake Shop uh, case, um, wasn't just a, a, people sort of tend to think of it as a freedom of religion case, in many ways it was, um, but it's also very much a freedom of expression case. And if you look at the, the language of the arguments and the language of the decisions, right, um, it wasn't that uh, the baker in that case refused to sell any cake to, uh, in that case, gay couples. Um, it was that he refused to create a custom cake using his own sort of expressive uh, abilities as a cake maker um, to to celebrate a gay wedding. Now, I should say, you know, just to be clear, like I have literally performed a gay wedding, right? So I disagree with his views, um, but it is it is wrong for the government to come in and say um, that you know, we are going to compel you to engage in speech with which you have um, deep-seated uh, deep, uh, religious objections to. And it's wrong for the government to come in and say, okay, Twitter, here's the policy for, um, you know, uh, bullying online, right? Well, we don't like the way you're doing it, and I'm from the government, and I'm here to help. That, that should scare everyone. It should especially scare conservatives, because you raised the concept of the fairness doctrine before. And then I'll end my, my little rant about this. As you can see, you've got me fired up. Um, you raised the concept of the fairness doctrine before. The fairness doctrine did really two things when it was applied to broadcast uh, media, radio, radio, um, radio and, and television, right? So the first of all, the only reason that the fairness doctrine was able to be invoked uh, at all was because it was a limited and scarce public resource that was being licensed out. And so that was the only sort of legal justification for why the government was able to get into this sort of speech dictating business. But, but the real two problems with the fairness doctrine are this. The first is it made it really dull. So because you had the risk of losing your government-sanctioned privilege to speak, uh, your broadcast license, um, if you violated this policy, uh, people became really skittish in the types of editorial decisions they made. And so there, there's both a, a sort of like 
branding of speech online that becomes really, you know, um, we shouldn't want in a vibrant society. Um, but the, the deeper problem is that the, it allowed for sort of government bullying. So when President Nixon, for example, famously didn't like the opinions of some broadcasters, he could call them up and threaten their licenses because he he could have lobbied his FCC to to re- revoke their licenses. And, and the prospect of a fairness doctrine for the internet, you know, a government mandate that says you must be neutral, you must present the sides that I want presented, um, is both that it makes those platforms really dull, but also it empowers politicians to threaten those companies um, when they don't uh, get the coverage that they'd want. I don't even know how it would work technically. It would probably break the internet. Uh, it wouldn't be good. Now let's go to the first bucket that you mentioned, uh, which is cultural fears around innovation. What do you suggest our listeners um, read or listen to or think about when they think about this high-level kind of concept that it's very hard to grasp? So, of course, they should subscribe to Tech Freedom's podcast. And if you haven't already, you should click the subscribe button now. Um, But in addition to that, I have a, a Twitter account podcast recommendation, and that's Pessimists Archive. Um, and and what Pessimists Archive is, uh, and we're very proud to be able to support them through the Charles Koch Foundation, is um, looking throughout history at examples of how the public has responded when new technologies came out. Um, and things that we take for granted today, that you might walk down the streets wearing a headphones, that you might uh, ride a bicycle, right? Um, things that we would view as like pretty non-objectionable, you would read um, you know, literature that's published in a paperback. Um, we're freaked out about at the time, right? So when uh, the bicycle was introduced, you had uh, hat manufacturers worrying that people wouldn't be buying the big fancy caps anymore and only have the small aerodynamic hats. And so they wanted mandates that people were should uh, have to buy big top hats. And the other problem with the bicycle is that it uh, liberated women and they were able to travel freely and independently. And you know clearly that, that would be a real problem. Um, when the Walkman came out and music was suddenly portable. You know, the weight, the physical weight of listening to your own music moved from a stereo that was rather large or, you know, sort of a boombox or on a, your shoulder. That's yeah, heavy. Uh, yeah. Or, or uh, a record player, right? Like with standing speakers and pretty big setup to something where with he- headphones that you could just walk around on the street. People were aghast. You know, CBS ran these news specials about how it would destroy society, basically, because we're all trapped in our cocoons. Or uh, there were, you know, close to something like a dozen cities in the U.S. considered banning the Walkman when it came out. In fact, uh, one grandfather in New Jersey went to jail for 15 days for crossing the road wearing headphones in a town that had outlawed it. Because he was so incensed that his grandson had gotten in trouble from the police officer for it, then in a defiant act of civil disobedience, he put on the Walkman, put on the headphones, and crossed the street, and you know probably told off the police officer in the process. So, so I say this because things that we take for granted today, um, you know, riding a bike or listening to music and headphones, were were greeted with horror at the time. Um, and I think it's often helpful to pull yourselves out of the current techno panic about you know, whatever technology it is and just you know, reflect on how we as a society have, have adapted and usually adapted not through government policy, but through social norms and through uh, parents talking to their children and through other uh, 
other uh, forms of governance that don't require government. I'm pretty sure that anyone who is listening has a little bit more optimism about the future and innovation and technology and how it affects our lives after this. We're going to link to all the work you mentioned in our show notes. Jesse, any final thoughts? Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Well, we hope you come back soon. Please subscribe and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Poppin, and any other platform that you listen to your podcast on. Thank you for listening. Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org.